Well, it is September 7th. We're looking at 27 days. It's 2016, and tonight the title of the message is Two Slaves and a Son. And this is my final conclusive message on sonship that the Lord has really been stirring up in my heart about well, how about I just teach it and preach it and you'll understand what God's been working in my heart. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Let's start off in Exodus chapter 21. Because we're going to look at two types of slaves. Exodus chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 2. Amen. Very peculiar scripture says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, I'm going to stop right there. How many of you ever bought a Hebrew servant? <laughs> I have bought some Hebrew hot dogs, <laughs> but I have never bought a Hebrew servant. And so as I was reading this, it kind of Okay, there's a command for those who have bought Hebrew servants. He is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. And as we've, if you guys have been at Pastor Eric's house any time in the last six months, we've, we've gone through uh, Exodus and we learned about uh, the Passovers, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, the seventh day, the Sabbath, experiencing the Sabbath. And so even in his commandments on the uh, slaves, that if they were a Hebrew, they would get a Sabbath from their six years of work. That this was built into even uh, the commandments on those who had Hebrew servants. And one of the things that really ah, threw me for a loop is I wonder how do you wind up the Hebrew who's being sold? Yeah. You know, I can understand a man having enough wealth to buy one, but who's this unfortunate soul who's being sold? And, you know, what has shaped his life now that he is now being sold as a servant? I mean... They were supposed to be the head, not the tail. They were supposed to be the master, not the slave. And here, there's a commandment that when you buy one of your brethren as a slave. And so the first slave that we're going to look at here tonight is the servant who is purchased and has to serve six years. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Because it's going to reference the same, same situation in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 12. And we're going to look at these and then we're going to look at some other scriptures. But then there's going to be a, a little rapid fire where we're just going to put the scriptures up on the screen and move along. Because this message has more scripture in it than I think I've ever preached and taught on before. Amen. And yesterday I was sick as a dog. And so I think I got what Eric had, and so I've been fighting to keep 
cognate up here for the last 24 hours. <clears throat> but it says, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. Give me the next verse and we'll just go through them. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I gave you you this command today. When they left Egypt, did they leave empty-handed? They didn't leave empty-handed. So even though you can be sold or even come to a point where you have to sell yourself into slavery, that once you have done your six years, you can leave with a blessing. Let's go to the next verse. It says, But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you. Then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maidservant. So what this is explaining here is if under certain conditions he had to sell himself or was sold into slavery. If you look at the translation, there's a good chance that they were sold into slavery and didn't sell themselves. There is an example of when they do sell themselves. But if they had to go into slavery because they were struggling and they went and worked for a wealthy man, of course, living for the wealthy man, that man could provide a better life than the slave could. And he said, and if your slave loves you, he can stay with you. If he is well off, he can continue to be his servant. Why? Because you provided a better life for him Amen. than he could on the outside. And so God is always looking for that better life, even if you're a slave. You have the choice to remain a slave for the rest of your life. You commit to that master and you live out the remainders of your days as his servant. And so we're going to look at uh, this. Now look at Exodus chapter 22, verse 3. Because we're going to find out how someone winds up in the position where they're a Hebrew slave. I can understand going to war with foreign nations and taking the spoils and taking the men, taking the women, and you have maidservants and manservants, and it's just the spoils of war. But how do you wind up with a Hebrew slave? It says... Um, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. You can go to verse 3. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must certainly make restitution. But if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. So if you commit a crime and you're unable to bring restitution... They're going to sell you to pay for something you've committed. You've done damages. You've broke into someone's house. You, you either, even if you kill their cow, you killed their sheep, 
you do something to cause damage, if you cannot pay for it, you will become a slave at the sell. That means you are being sold to redeem what some other man had lost. Make you think twice if you don't have anything and you're going to steal. As a Hebrew, you could become a slave. We even see this in the Newer Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 23. This is Jesus sharing a parable. But even in his parables, they're, uh, they're accurate to the law. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. We're talking 10,000 talents. There's a story with, you know, five talents, you know. We're talking 10, it's a, it is a, a number that is unfathomable. It's unimaginable how much this man owed. And the Lord uses it to show you the drastic um, condition of being in debt to something you can never pay off. You know, if, if I had a debt of $50 billion, it wouldn't bother me. You know why? Because I couldn't pay it off. Yeah. Why even give them the first payment? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pay it off. Right? <laughs> but this master is settling debts. And it says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That makes me reconsider whether I pay that first payment or not. Because not only him, but his wife and his children can be sold. He could lose everything if he can't pay his debts. That is what causes a man, a Hebrew man, that is what we're talking about. The commandments are saying, when you get this man, he's still your brother. And he's now a slave. Be a little sensitive to what you, you have taken on. But we're going to look more at the slaves than the actual slave owner. Because these, this slave, the slave we're talking about, is a man who owes a debt that he cannot repay. And therefore, according to the Word of God, if you cannot pay your debts, you're a slave. Because you have to repay your debts. We're going to look at slave number two. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 25. So uh, slave number one, he's sold into slavery and he's purchased with a price. And slave number two that we're going to look at is not a man who's in debt. It's a man who's on the verge of starving. And if we go to, I don't know if I gave you the full, uh, Leviticus chapter 25, let's start in verse 39. If any one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, 
Do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Now we know the year of Jubilee, this can come every 50 years. And the thing is, is he could be dedicating the rest of his life to serve as a hired hand. Now you're supposed to not treat him like a slave, but he just sold himself. And so by all means, he is still a slave. He has to work to pay off or to, to provide for himself and for his family. And he works because it's profitable for him. It's the only way for him to survive. It's a better life for him than starving. So those are our two slaves that we're going to look at. One's debt and the other one's poverty. Those are two prominent lifestyles here in America. Debt and poverty. And they're both slaves. We look at the poor and say, man, why would you want to live like that? Why wouldn't you just get a job and work? But what about the man who has to work two jobs to maintain a specific lifestyle? Is he any less a slave? Slaves, slave or servants, endure the suffering of working for another man for payment or to maintain a certain lifestyle. Let me ask you a question. Tomorrow morning you walk into work and your boss calls you in the office and says, hey, the good news is you're going to get to keep your job. The bad news is we're not going to be able to pay you for it. And that might be fine a week or two, but you ask them, well, how long is this going to go? And they say, well, as long as you want your job, you can have it. And you're like, well, when do I get paid? Well, you're not going to get paid. You're just going to work. How many of you would go back to work? Why? Because you're going to go find another place to work because you are willing to sell yourself to work because there you are willing to suffer because of a payment that you're going to receive at the end of the week to provide for your family, right? That's true. That's true. And this is the mentality that we have in our culture, but that is not how the kingdom works. And we're going to look at the mindset of slaves versus the mindset of the son. Amen. And how we are watching the changing of the gospel to be more like our culture in America than the heavenly culture. We view God as one who we owe a debt to. And we're compelled to serve by feeling unworthy. And you never seem to please God. That's a mentality of some in the church. And it's probably a mentality of some of us in here. You don't think that you're ever good enough for God, and so you're not going to, you, you, you never think that you're pleasing to God, and so you, you do work, but you never feel like you're ever going to pay off that debt. That debt is so large, then why do I even begin to work for, for God? Because I'm just, I'm just never going to please Him. My debt's too big. You never feel like you can please God. 
And so you just get overwhelmed and you live and you work and even in the what you work you feel like you're working to please God when you work the other one serves God for what God can provide for him so one of them has the debt mentality doesn't even feel worthy to even be serving and the other one serves because this is a good life. In fact, it's your best life now. <laughs> Come to God and He can give you a better life than you can provide for yourself. That is what is being preached. And who wouldn't want a better life? Who wouldn't want a better life serving God? But guess what? It actually sounds good. And I'm sure some people listening on the tape are going to say, well, that sounds good to me. But we have a pattern of sonship, and it doesn't match the pattern of the mentality of the bondservant or the slave. See, Israel worshipped God, Yahweh, like he was an idol. That's why it was so easy for them to switch over to a different God. Because they worshipped God for what God would provide for them. And if they felt a different God would provide it easier and uh, it was saw that God blessing people and they wanted it, they would just go and worship that God. But most of the times when they worshipped Yahweh, they worshipped Him like an idol. They worshipped Him like some deity that they could appease and God would repay them for whatever they desired in their heart. Even Abraham, to whom the older covenant was made, he reverenced God as a deity. In the older covenant that was made, he approached them as their God. He says, all these nations have their own God, but you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And so that relationship was still a people and a God. And we look at Abraham, and I look at Abraham's life, especially now that I'm, a, I'm just a month away of giving my first, firstborn to the Lord. I look at Abraham. I say, how did he do it? How did, he, how did Abraham accomplish so much under a covenant where he was just the people and there was this God how, how, can, how did he do it? Because if I'm ever half the man that I believe Abraham was, we would be great men of faith. The covenant was made with Abraham. Yes. He was a great man of God. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. Abraham is going to be sacrificing Isaac because God told him to. God said, I want you to worship me in this way. I want you to take the life of your firstborn son. Which actually went contrary to everything that God had promised Abraham. But Abraham was obedient enough that he raises 
his hand. And an angel appears and says, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now angel is speaking, but he begins to talk in first person. He begins to say, now I know, Abraham, you fear me. You ought to do the paleo on that. And I actually removed the paleo out of my message because I didn't have enough time. But you've got to look at that paleo of fear. It, it, will give you, it will define for you the worship that they had to be obedient to. And you'll understand what motivated Abraham to do it. We know that fear is not the same fear that we have towards the world, that that fear is a reverence to God. It's a reverence to God that God is an authority. And you have to have a reverence for the highest authority. There was a level of obedience on Abraham's part that provided, uh, that proved to God that Abraham feared him. Now we know in the last couple teachings we've had on Monday night that God made a covenant and the covenant was a covenant of love. love. Amen. 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 I am... I'm, I'm, I know this is dragging on, but it's about to get really, really good because I found some good stuff. <laughs> Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. It says, Now therefore that the Lord your God is God, He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who loved him and keep his commandment. Notice God keeps his covenant of love. All right, so let's look at this covenant of love. Now we'll, we'll put the scriptures on the screen and you won't have to turn there because we're going to go real slow and we're going to look at these really close. All right, so... With everybody's attention, let's look at the first one because I don't want anyone to throw stones at me until I'm finished. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Put it on the screen. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It's about, G he was talking about the Levitical priesthood versus Jesus' priesthood. And it says, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. Amen. So Jesus' ministry is superior to what the Levites did. And even the covenant is superior than the old one. And it is founded on better promises. We're going to come back to that. But we're going to go one more slide to verse 7. And we're going to go... Real slow. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, oh my gosh, no place would have been sought for another man. Another one. You mean to tell me there was something wrong 
But the first covenant, I thought the scripture says that all of God's ways were true and right. And there, were, oh, there is something wrong with the first covenant because if there was no need, then we wouldn't have a new one. Give me the next slide. God found fault with the people, not his covenant. His covenant is right. It is true. It is just. It is pure. And it is flawless. It was who he made the covenant with. He, but God found fault with the people. He found fault with the persons that he had made the covenant with. The covenant is, doesn't change. He says he's going to make a new covenant. And he's going to take those exact laws and he's going to put them in our hearts. Amen. He says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the same people. But I thought that was the problem was that they were the problem. He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What's the next slide? It will not be like the first covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. That is a reference to Jeremiah 31:32. The covenant was perfect. God made a covenant of love with a people who couldn't properly respond to a covenant of love. If it was a covenant of how to worship an idol, they probably would have kept that one very well. But the fact that it was a covenant of love, they were incapable of keeping it. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because really what the problem was, the problem wasn't what was written. It was what it was written on. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's start in verse 26. Let's see what it was written on. So what was the covenant written on? Tablets of stone. I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. Amen. Same people. New heart. That because... He had written it on stone. God would be faithful to it, but the people receiving the covenant could not uphold it. The law was perfect, but it was made weak. It was made to no effect because of the weakness of their sinful flesh. If the first covenant was perfect, and it was, why the need for a new one? And if there's a new one, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Let's go to verse 6. 
Okay, so there's a new covenant. And it is founded on better promises. So, there's a better promise. And this all came about because I was looking at Abraham's life and I was blown away. But then I realized, what do we have that Abraham didn't have? What do we have that Abraham didn't have under the older covenant? Because it says that it's founded on better promises. It's founded on better promises. So we're going to do we're going to look at this. You don't have to turn there, but we're going to look at them on the screen. Let's look at Luke chapter 24 verse 49. Luke 24:49. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Acts 1:4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, "Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised." which you have heard me speak about. Acts 2.33 Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. Acts 2.38 Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let's go to Ephesians one thirty one. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And let's go to... Uh, that was Ephesians one thirty one. I'm sorry. That's a good one, but <laughs> Ephesians one thirty one is what I was... There isn't a 31. That's what... Okay, then my notes aren't correct. Let's go to Hebrews 11.31. My wife typed out these notes for me. <laughs> it was. It was good. If I had just gone on to the next slide, y'all wouldn't even have known. By faith... The prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. See, that's not even that. Uh, go to verse 39. It must be 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been... Oh, wow. There's a, in, in Hebrews, there is a whole list of amazing men. And the word tells us they were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. So after we went through those scriptures, look, 
the promises, there's a, there was many things that we have received as better promises. But I'm focusing on one tonight, the big one. What, through those scriptures, can you see that the Holy Spirit was what's being promised? Yeah, it's Ephesians 1.13. Oh, it was Ephesians 1.13? Yeah, let's put Ephesians 1.13 up there. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Amen. That spirit was promised. I mean, where did he promise that he was going to give us this Holy Spirit? And I'm shuffling through my notes because I actually have it. Let's go back to Ezekiel 36. 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The next verse. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, they didn't have the spirit moving in them. The law hasn't changed where it's written and what it's written on. It's now written on a heart of flesh. He removes from us a heart of stone. The heart of stone considers the law too heavy, too much of a burden. But a heart of flesh delights in the way of the Lord. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We have something Abraham didn't have the Spirit, the Spirit of God in us, moving in us, enabling us to keep our portion of the covenant. Because Israel could not. Israel could not keep the covenant. And he said, what I'm going to do is, I'm not going to write them off. I'm going to make a new covenant, and I'm going to enable them to be able to keep it. Amen. That's a good word. The covenant wasn't actually made to us. We're grafted in to the promises still made to the people. God is faithful to his promises. Yes. And so merciful that we've been invited to participate in those promises he made with Israel and the house of Judah. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. I want to know what the role of the Spirit is in my life. For, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of... And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Abraham didn't cry out, Father, he could only cry out, God. There's a big difference. Yes, he's still God, but he's God, our Father. Amen. He is the deity in heaven. He is the deity that has created all things. And we no longer just have to call him God. We get to call him Father. Not only do we, we get to, the Spirit in us cries out, 
Father. It looks to the deity not as just some God out there, but it cries out the same way that Brinton, Branch, and Luke cried to their father. Not some distant power, the man of the house. Yes. The one that provides them protection and love. And my girls, the same thing. They cry out, Abba, Father. And I say, you know, Abraham accomplished so much. How much more should we accomplish being brought much closer to God? Because he's not just some deity. He is our heavenly Father. So when his disciples said, teach us to pray... What was the first words to come from Jesus' mouth? Our Father who art in heaven. He could have said, Oh, magnificent God, somewhere out there in the wonder blue. But he said, Our Father. He didn't say your Father. He didn't say my Father. He said, Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Holy is your name. I'm going to say that most people who call him father, it's not the spirit crying out in them. It's just some religious term. Because we're going to look at what that spirit is producing in us. Because it cries out father, but actually what it's crying inward is, be a son. Because the only way that we can call him father is if we act like a son. But Romans 8.15, if you put it back up, says we did not receive a spirit to make you a slave again to fear. If Abraham knew God the way we knew, God would have said, now I know Abraham loves me. But because of the relationship they had, it was only that reverent fear that motivated Abraham. I know Abraham loved God, but he didn't know him as a father. It's kind of like an authority. Look, police. When you hear police, there's one or two things that pop up in your mind. It depends on where you're at. If you're on the road and it's police... You always say to yourself, I would hate to be a cop. Giving people tickets all the time. What kind of life would that be? Ruining people's day. But be in need of a cop? Oh my God, I'm so thankful you were here. You guys do great work. See, that's how we view authority. We don't like it when we're not doing well. But we love it when we're in need. That's not how we view God. We view him more as a father. So a son serves the father like a slave. Let's look. So it says you did not receive a spirit to make you a slave. Now, this is Paul writing. Turn to Romans six eighteen, and let's look at that scripture. It says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, how do we, how do we put these together 
without them contradicting each other. Because in 8.15, he says, you haven't received the Spirit to make you a slave. But right here it says, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. How do we take those two things and are we slaves? Were we made slaves or were we set free from being a slave? So we're going to look at that. So we're going to look at some scriptures and we're going to come back and you're going to see how awesome these two scriptures actually go together. Because God's word is perfect. It's usually the one on the other end is the problem, right? See, a son serves the father like a slave and would even appear to be a servant because the work he does is the same as a servant and a slave. In the work, there is no difference, but in their position and relationships, there is a world of difference. There is a drastic difference in the one they work for. And we're going to go through some scriptures. And this is actually going to open up some of the parables and some of the stories that Jesus was sharing with the people about sons and their father. It says, being a servant of God does not negate your position as a son, nor does it ultimately define our relationship. A son may work like a slave, but his, motiva- he, his motivation is not self-seeking, whether it is to pay off a debt, nor is it for profit, like the bondservant who wants a better life. We're going to look at what motivated the son. See, I have no problem defining myself as a servant of the Most High, and oh, that I would even appear to be a slave to my God in the way that I work and serve him. But my motivation is that of a son. Let's, let's, uh, I'm actually going to jump around a little bit from my notes. Let's go to, um, let's go to Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Are we a slave or are we a son? I think our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And that attitude was, what's verse 6 say? Who being the very nature, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of of a servant. It's the same word that they also translate slave. Being made in human likeness. So you're telling me the son chooses to take the position of a slave. He chooses to do the work of a slave. And the crazy thing is, is when the son is out in the field, because that's where he's supposed to be, you can't tell a difference between the slave and the son until someone in authority has to speak up. Then you find out who the son is. Let's take a look at 
Let's take a look at two signs, Matthew um, 21, 28. Jesus, Jesus was talking to him, and I, I love this. He says, what do you think? What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Next slide. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did his, what his fathers wanted? I like some of the other translations that says, which one did the will of the father? The first they answered, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, that tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God ahead of you. But let's go all the way back up to um, where we started, which was 28. He said, go and work today in the vineyard, in the field. So where is the, is the son at home, relaxing in the palace, eating grapes, watching all my children? What, what's expected of the son? Go to work. He's expected to go to work. And guess where he works? Side by side. Side by side with the slaves. And he takes on the farm and the position of a slave. But he didn't consider it uh, something to be grasped, according to the NIV. Other translation says, robber. He didn't take away anything of his position nor God's with him working with servants and slaves. And so he's working with the slaves, but he doesn't work for the same reason the slaves work. You see, he took on the farm of a slave. He didn't take on the nature nor the position with the father as a slave. He remained as a son, but he worked as a servant. And so sonship deals with going to work. Amen. Working to where if someone looked at you, they might think you're a slave. You work, son. You work. Boy, if the father would catch him in the palace eating grapes. <laughs> Especially if he's my firstborn. That's right. I'd rather him tell me no, but then have a change of heart and go, than to tell me he would and I catch him back in the palace. The Every time we see a relationship with a father and son, you're gonna, we're going to start to see this. Watch, let's look. I know, there's another parable about a father with two sons. Let's look at Luke chapter 15, verse 17 and 19. So we know there was a son, the younger son, who wanted to go do his own, own thing. As for his inheritance, disrespected his father in just about every way becomes completely impoverished. Now, what, the word, what does the word say of that if someone is completely impoverished and they lose everything? Oh, they sell themselves as a what? As a slave. 
It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. It's like one of his slaves, one of the men. He was going to go back and work for the father so he could have a better life than he was living. He's going back to the father with a slave mentality. I just work. He's still thinking about himself at this point. He's still thinking, I will have a better life if I go work for my father. Because this life is just not panning out the way I thought it would. Next verse. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And we know the story. What does he give him? He gives him his ring. He puts shoes back on his feet. This guy showed up without his shoes. He was destitute. Didn't even have his cloak, didn't have anything. He was restored back to a son. And he even tells his dad, he says, next verse, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Next verse, and before he can even ask, the father says, get his robe, get his ring. Because he's not going to serve me like a servant. I'm going to teach him to serve me like a son. Because if he comes back into my house and serves me like a servant, he's still dead to me as my son. He wants to restore him back to the, as a son. And so there's a party going on. And let's look at another son. Let's go to uh, verse 25. Do you understand that if you work for God like a slave, you're not a son? That's right. With the mentality of the slave, even though you're doing the same work as everybody else, you're not a son. The father wanted his son back, and he had to restore him back to being a son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Where's the son at? He's working, he's working hard. He's in the field working. He's never left his father. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He's like, what's going on over there? So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. So he's working, and what's next to him? A servant, a slave. Where's he at? He's working with the slaves. The man said, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Next verse. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. So he's like, I'm not going to be a part of this. I'm not going to be a part of it. So the father comes out. He, one of the amazing things is, is the father is now approaching, doing the same thing he did with the first son. He said, I'm coming to you to restore you. You want to be one of my hired hands? And I'm going to restore you as my son. Watch what this father does. He goes out. But he answered his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving. I've been a slave. Problem is he took on the mentality of a slave because a slave works for what? Pay. 
for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He says, you, 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 I haven't gotten compensated for my work. And so this father is reaching out and trying to restore him also as a son. Because he's acting like a slave right here. And the father left the party, the first son, to go deal with this one because he lost both sons at some point just now. He's got one back and he lost one. He says, I'm going to go out and get this one because listen what it says. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Next verse. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you notice, when the father first comes, he calls his brother your son. But he doesn't say my brother. He says your son. And so he's separating him from his brother. But God said, your brother. This brother of yours. You're both sons. You're both my sons. I love you like both my sons. If you would have left, I'd have done the same thing for you. But that son was refusing to go in to be with the father. But he's showing his true colors there. He's got this mentality like a slave. And he didn't realize he was getting gypped until his brother came home. I mean, he, would, he didn't have a problem working like a slave before the brother came home. But then he realized, hey, he never rewarded me for all my work. He's been working all this time for pay. And look what the father says. He says, what are you talking about? Uh, go to 33. My son. Uh, oh, I might, it might have been there because that might be the last one of that. Uh, he says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He's like, what are you talking about getting paid? Don't you understand that everything is yours? Don't you understand that everything is yours? And so we, we begin to see these sons not acting like sons. They're thinking more like slaves. And they're coming and they're going to work for their father. But it doesn't, that's not the relationship. The father, the father could go get more slaves, don't you think? He wants sons. And when you're born as a son, even though you're working with slaves, you're not a slave. You should be out in the field, but your relationship with the Father is different. And so I'm saying, what do we have different that Abraham didn't have? What? So I'm going to finish this up by looking at what motivates us. What are our motives? Because I'll be honest with you, the son who doesn't think he's worthy disrespects his father every bit as much as the one who is doing it for his own gain. Because neither one, if you don't feel worthy enough to serve God, it's just an atrocity of someone completely in vainglory. Because he can't have the correct relationship with you because you don't see yourself as a son. You see yourself as in debt, as a slave. And you're trying to appease him. But we're going to look at self-ambition or the pursuit 
to be greatest. Because these, that's kind of what was going on with these sons. I mean, he's like, this son came in. I thought I was greater than this son. You, you, you showed he's greater because you gave him a, a calf and you didn't even give me a goat. He's basing off of what he saw his brother get of who was greater. And he said, I never gave you a goat. Everything I have is yours. Let's go to Matthew uh, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 26. Matthew 20, 26. Because I have struggled so much and probably lived most of my Christian life more as a slave than a son, when sonship began to be birthed in my heart, uh, I was a son all along. But the scripture says, until I've matured, I, I, I differ no different than a slave. And so as we begin to mature, these, we, our motives of why we even serve God begin to change. I mean, some of us come to Christ because we don't want to go to hell. That's the debt we feel we have to pay. And some of us come to Christ because some guy told us it's the best life that you can have now. But as we mature... As we learn to work in the field and what it is to serve God as a mature son, our motivation of why we work changes. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Servant. Oh, wow. And whoever wants to be first must be your? Slave. Oh, well, here's the servant and the slave. I thought we weren't called to be servants or slaves. And he says, you want to be the greatest? Go to work. Get out in the field. Don't ask for your inheritance now. Go work like a, sl a slave. Go work like a servant. But not for the same reasons. He says the greatest among you is not asking who's the greatest because he's too busy working for his father. And for... Many years I wanted to be great in the kingdom of God because I wanted to do great things for my father. But it was still selfish ambition. It was still selfish ambition. And guess what? It would have, I would have been that older son saying, I worked harder than this. I should get a better reward than, than this. You didn't even give me a goat. I can identify with that son because I wanted so much to be the amazing man of God. I wanted so much to have an amazing ministry. But when it really came down to it, it was all for vainglory. It was all so I could appear to be a great son. And I would have missed the actual relationship I'm supposed to have with my father. Because I wanted glory. And watch, we can actually look at some scriptures, some good stuff. The greatest in his kingdom is the one who takes the lowest place, who's willing to take the lowest position. He didn't say uh, that we had to go into bondage as a slave and sell ourselves. What he's saying is, as a son, you have to be willing to work like that. You will never lose your position. How many people right now, if the gospel was... 
Who wants to be a son of God? We're going to put you to work. In fact, we're going to send you to a country where they don't have electricity, where they don't have running water. It's the worst thing you can go to. How, how long would that line be? But if we will set you up in the palace and feed you grapes, and you will have AC, and you will have uh, so many riches in this life, and even more to come. Man, that sounds like a great pitch line. It would be. It would be a great, great gospel. It's just not the gospel. It's just not the gospel. Good work. So, we, had, we were talking the other night at Wade's house. We were talking about ministering to Jehovah Witnesses. And the Jehovah Witness will go... Show me in here where Jesus is God. Show it. Show me in here where Jesus is God. You can't find it. You know what your answer is? This is written to show that Jesus is the Son. He's the Son of God. And He's come to show us what a Son looks like. Yes, He's equal to God and He didn't consider it robbery that He took on the farm of a servant. And walked as a son. The scriptures are to declare him as a son. Of course we would like to have all these scriptures to have 400 references where Jesus says, I'm God. Actually, he says, I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I am, let me wash your feet. He's showing us what sonship is like. That might not be what they want to see. But that is what the Spirit is proclaiming to us. Do we really want to see what sonship is? What, is? what you see produced in Jesus' life is produced in our life because the Spirit is crying out, Father, Abba, Father. It really is crying inward, telling us and teaching us that we're sons. Don't look at Him as some deity. He's our Father who is in heaven. Let's look at um, John chapter 5, verse 19. And I just have a couple scriptures left. Um, we've gone through these scriptures quite a few times. I think they've shown up in at least two or three different services about the son not doing anything else on his own accord, but only doing what the he sees the father do. Let me share with you a quick story. Some of you heard it because you listened to some other messages. But the message of sonship is the message that we preach. And you have Jehovah Witness and you have Muslims think it's an absolute blasphemy to call him father. That's the promise. Yes. It's to call him father. To have that relationship is what Christ provided for us. That's why it's written over and over. That's what this whole newer covenant is about. It's about us getting to be sons. And that's why it shows Jesus not as God, but as the Son of God. Because He's, he's laying the pattern that we're being conformed to. This is the church of the firstborn. This is the church of the sons of of God. And so my last day at work, there was 
a Muslim who, uh, he came up and he knocked on my door and he said, can, can I take you to get a coffee before you go? I, I just would like to talk with you. And I said, sure, let's go have coffee. So we're, we're having coffee. And he's a really, really nice guy. And we've talked quite a bit. And uh, I was able to, to minister very little that I could because there was not a whole lot that he could relate to. But he was watching something and he knew my story. We were going to Indonesia and it's a Muslim country. And he buys my coffee. We sit down and he says, I'm not being disrespectful. He says, but I have to know. He said, my, he said, my family, my parents sold all they had, gave all that they had and left a Muslim country to come to the U.S. to provide a, a better life for themselves and their children and their grandchildren. And he said, you're selling all that you have and taking your family to a Muslim country. He said, I wouldn't go back to a Muslim country. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go back to a Muslim country. Why are you going? He was just completely confused of why we would go to a place that doesn't offer any benefits that he was considering worth living for. Yeah. And so I began to share with him the parable of the uh, son that went wayward. And when he was coming back, he tried to come back as a hired hand. And the father wouldn't let him. I began to share with him. I said, I used the story with him. I said, if we went back to work and they told you that, you know, you can keep your job, we just won't pay you. I said, you wouldn't keep your job. I said, because you work with the intent to get paid. I said, you worship Allah with the intent that you're going to appease him. That if you can work hard enough, you'll appease him and you won't go to hell or wherever you guys go or think you go. <laughs> Whether they do good or bad according to their laws, that's where they're going. But I said, see, your mentality to God, whether whatever you call him, whoever you think, I said, we don't serve the same God because mine's a father. I said, You're, you serve God with a slave mentality. You serve your Allah with a slave mentality. Trying to appease Him so you can get a reward at some point. I said, and so everything you do is calculated with the reward. I mean, you would be willing to do a much harder job if it paid a whole lot more. You're willing to suffer if that suffering pays off really good. I said, but what you're actually seeing is that you're asking me what's the payoff for going to Indonesia? So there is none. There's no payoff. I'm not going to Indonesia because there's a payoff. I'm going because my Heavenly Father asked me to go work in the field. And you are looking at me and saying, you look like a slave. Why would you do this? Why would you go? Because he's like, I, you know, I look at America and I look at Indonesia and he's like, I put all the pluses of being in America and I, he's like, There's, why would you go to Indonesia? There's nothing in that category. I said, my father's will is there. Amen. 
I serve him and I'm willing to go because I'm a son. And I said, you know how you're taught that it's an abomination to call him father, that he has no son? I said, you're missing out on the promises that he has given us. You are missing out on the entire thing that he has provided for us because he wants us to serve him like a son. To serve him like Jesus served him. And Jesus is that pattern. And John chapter 5 verse 19 through 20. See, we are willing to serve God when it's selfish ambition if the payoff is good. And so we choose what we do based off of what we think it looks like. I say, why would I want a great ministry? Because a great ministry has to have a great minister, right? What if God said, I'm going to call you to clean bathrooms? And that's your ministry. I mean, is he not the father? Doesn't, is it the son that gets to choose what he wants to do? Wasn't it the father say, go work in my field? See, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. The son doesn't even get to choose what he does. He does what the father tells him to do. That to me sounds like a slave. That to me sounds like a servant. Well, it is. It looks just like it. That's why the scriptures can say he took on the form of a servant. But he never took on the position in the family as the servant because he's always the son. You just can't tell them apart until the inheritance comes. Then you find out who the slave was and who the son was because the slave gets none of the inheritance. He just got a check all along or he got his debts paid off. John chapter 8 verse 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. He didn't even speak anything outside of what the Father taught him. Let's go to John chapter 7, verse 18. And this is the clincher right here. This is the one that blows me away. Because he who speaks on his own does it to gain honor for who? I had to come to a point where all the things that I wanted to go do for God had to die and watch every promise that I thought he had spoken to me drift away. Really what he was doing? He was taking all that honor I wanted for myself away and out of it. Because I don't know if I would have been as eager to do a ministry if it was humiliating. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. See, the one who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. But he who works... See, he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. You could put he who works on his own. Because he says, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him 
is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. We don't work for our honor. We work for the honor of the one who sent him. Jesus did. That's why he was able to take the shame. That's why, I mean, what the Father asked him to do was humiliation. It was a humiliating ministry. But he didn't consider it robbery. He didn't consider it, he didn't consider taking anything away because guess what? He was creating the other side of the covenant that, he was, that the Father was going to make with. He was going to provide for us that heart of flesh, that that spirit was going to come in and be written on our hearts and no longer on tablets made of stone. And we're going to finish off on Romans 8.15. So I'm not saying that you're not going to look like a slave I'm not saying that you're not going to look or that you won't be a slave to righteousness. Amen. What I'm saying is, that's not your position. That's right. Your position is one of sonship. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And I had to come to a point, and the reason why this sonship message is so great, but because the thing that was crying out in me was more about my gain than the Spirit of God crying out, Abba, Father. And if, you're, if the Spirit that is crying out in you is saying that you're not worthy, then you're not hearing the cry of Abba, Father. You're like the son who wanted to come home and just be a servant. And they're usually ones that says, look, as long as I'm a servant at the door, uh, as long as I'm a door servant. No, your, your mentality's wrong. That's right. You go where your father puts you, and that's where you go. Good. You don't take the least because that's how you fear, you, you fear God. I'm, I just take the least. And then there's one of them is, if I don't get to sit at the head of the table, then what's in it for me? That was the other brother. I, I didn't even get a goat. So there's two sons that is not fulfilling the call of the father because they both have the wrong mindset of why they're doing what they're doing. And so that's the conclusion of my message. I just want you to take inventory because I've been taking a lot of inventory on my attitude, what I'm going to do in Indonesia. I can tell you now, I'm only doing what the Father tells me to do. I am not doing a thing He doesn't tell me to do. Amen. But I'm going to do everything He tells me to Amen. do, Amen. even if it costs me my life. Amen. Amen.